see you this morning. Nice to be back here in Mutley. I was trying to work out at uh, the earlier service. I think that's four or five times I've been to Mutley. And someone said, I think I've heard you every time. But he couldn't remember anything of what I'd said on any of the other times, which was a bit discouraging. Uh, but I do remember one time the set passage you gave me was about women keeping silent in church. And it was some while after that that you invited me back again. So it's nice to be uh, back again this morning. When I did say yes, I would come, two things I didn't realize. One is the clocks were changed last night. And thank you for remembering. We did have someone in one of my churches who did remember. They changed their clock an hour, but they changed it an hour the wrong way. And I can't remember whether they arrived two hours early or two hours late. I can't remember that. The other thing I didn't realize at the time when I said yes to today was... It was going to be the Cricket World Cup final this morning. And the last score I had was New Zealand innings. I don't know if anybody knows what the Australia score is. No. You're all Plymouth Argyle fans down here. Football, isn't it, rather than cricket. Anyway, yeah, so it, was a good, it wasn't a good choice of day to come, but it was a great choice to come back here to Plymouth again and, and share with you. Australia won, did they? I'm not surprised. My, my son lives out in Australia, and uh, he lives in Melbourne, so he'll be quite excited about that, I'm sure. Nice to be here. Uh, I'm nice to sing some rock and roll this morning. Thank you for your worship, too. But I was a bit discouraged when she said, my parents were fans of the Beatles. I remember going to see the Beatles when I was a teenager, just so it just shows, doesn't it, how time has gone by. You've given me a set passage, which is great, so I'm going to try and respond to that and share with you. You've been looking at Luke's Gospel, some of the teaching of Jesus, and we come this morning to Luke, uh, look at Luke chapter 6 and verses 39 to 49. This is part of what's commonly known as the Sermon on the Plain. Comparison to, as it were, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting that when you look at the different Gospels, it's a bit like looking at the same building from different angles. I remember someone saying they went to a National Trust property and it was closed, but they walked around looking in each window and you could see different aspects of the rooms from different windows. And I think the Gospels are a bit like different windows. You look through and you see different aspects of the picture of Jesus that we have there. In Mark's Gospel, the emphasis is on what Jesus did, and it's all about action. And in Matthew and Luke, there's much more emphasis on what Jesus said and his teaching. You know, we're often, uh, we're amazed at Jesus' miracles, but we often read in Scripture that the people were amazed at his teaching because it was so powerful, so fresh. John's Gospel, the emphasis is much more on who Jesus was and is, and the person of Christ. But we're looking at some of the teaching of Jesus here in Luke's Gospel. Luke 6, 39. Jesus also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Students are not above their teacher, but all who are fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. 
Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in their heart. And evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for those who come to me and hear my words and put them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug deep down and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But those who hear my words (coughs) and do not put them into practice are like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Let's pause for a moment of prayer. Father, it's possible that some of these words are quite familiar to us, but I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'll bring them home to us in a fresh way. And especially thinking about that little parable about the wise man who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears your word and does it. And the foolish man is the, wise, is the one who hears your word but does not do it. We pray you will help us this morning not to be just hearers only, but doers of whatever it is you are saying to us or asking of us this morning. So help me in speaking, Lord. Help us in listening and help us all in obeying what you're saying to us through your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just a few weeks ago now, I had a a very official looking letter come through the post. It was clearly not a piece of junk mail. It was one of these official things, government things, you know. And so I opened it carefully and inside was a summons. A summons to appear in court. Not in the dock, I hasten to add, but as a member of the jury. I don't know if that's happened to any of you any time. And you, you can put it off once, but you're not allowed to put it off more than once. Although people have tried in various ways to get out of doing jury service, it's the first time it's happened to me. And as I thought about this, I thought about a sense of the responsibility that's involved. To, sta- to sit, as it were, with others in judgment on one of my fellow human beings and to decide whether they're guilty or not guilty. It does feel quite a responsibility. And if any of you have ever done it, maybe have felt that kind of feeling. But then I went on to think, well, actually, it's something that many of us do on many occasions. We sit in judgment on other people. Sometimes we judge by what they say or by what they look like or even by what they wear and perhaps especially by what they do. And this, of course, is what Jesus has in mind in these verses. He's not thinking about courts and juries and judgments in that sense. He's thinking about our everyday relationships with one another. How we treat each other and how so easily we can judge one another. We're looking at, as I said, Jesus' teaching and how revolutionary it is. Deceptively simple, but uncomfortably searching. 
You've been looking at things like the Beatitudes, where Jesus turns the whole world's priorities and, and perspective and vision and values upside down. And now he talks about loving your enemies, about loving those who don't deserve to be loved. He talks about loving and giving and forgiving and serving. And then in verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Artie Kendall, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, Never to judge another person is the most difficult thing in the world to accomplish. And he found it so challenging that he would read this verse every morning before he went out to meet other people. Do not judge, do not judge. At the beginning of every day, he would remind himself, of these important words of Jesus. Do not judge. And yet, and yet how often we stick labels on people. We play the blame game. We enter the fault-finding championships. We become both judge and jury. For one reason, it makes us look better because we can see the faults in others and so on. And we become judge and jury and find other people guilty. We become what is surely a contradiction in terms. We become judgmental Christians. How quickly we turn from one day being the prodigal son, finding our way home, being welcomed by the grace of God, and we turn into the elder brother, judging the behaviour and lifestyle of others. Now, of course, there's many reasons why we shouldn't judge. Firstly, Jesus says, because our understanding is always so limited. We are like blind people leading blind people. We, we cannot see things clearly for ourselves. We cannot see the whole picture. Rarely do we know the, all the facts about why someone is and why someone does what they do. How often I've said something, and, you and, and then later your wife or your husband or your friend has said to you, did you know that so-and-so had just been through this? always facing this issue in their life. And you think, if only I'd have known that, I wouldn't have said what I said. Many of you will remember Mark and Kathy Madavan, who were part of the church here in Mutley uh, some years ago. They went, uh, were called to ministry and came to work with me in Andover. Andover Baptist Church, where I was minister for 14 years, until my successor, Clive Bernard, came along, who you know all about. Uh, and uh, Mark and Kathy came to work with us in, in Andover for, for a number of years before going on to Locks Heath, where he is now. And Kathy's just written a book, or had a book published, about digging for diamonds. And, and in this book, she, she mentions what she calls there the one fact more principle. That how often we say things without realising that one vital piece of information that may make all the difference. One fact more. That person who's grumpy this morning, is it because they've just lost someone they loved or going through a difficult time at work? That person who ignored you, was it perhaps because their mind was, was focused on issues that they're facing in their life or maybe they have a, a hearing problem or whatever? Seldom do we see the whole picture. Seldom do we know all the facts. Our understanding is always limited. But secondly, Jesus tells us, our vision is always blurred. And he draws this familiar cartoon. The cartoon of the man with a plank 
in his eye, trying to remove the speck from the eye of another person, trying to perform this delicate operation of moving a tiny speck of sawdust, completely unaware of this vast lump of wood that is there within his own eye. I wonder, I wonder if Jesus ever had a speck of sawdust in his eye when he was a carpenter. And maybe he had to ask someone to help him remove it. See, we so easily can see that tiny thing in someone else's life and miss the huge thing in our own life. Or the big issue that's out. I was hearing a story of a man who was convinced his wife had a hearing problem. So he went to see the doctor. He said he was anxious that his wife wouldn't come and get some help, get a hearing aid. And so the doctor suggested what he should do was to go home and, and just as he goes through the front door, he should ask, honey, what, what's for dinner? And if you get no response, then go through into the hall and ask, honey, what's for dinner? And then if you still don't get a response, go right there into the kitchen, perhaps where she is, and say, honey, what's for dinner? And if she still doesn't respond, then go right up behind her and ask, honey, what's for dinner? And so he thought this was a good idea. He went home and he tried it. Got in the hall, got in the, the kitchen, got right behind her. Honey, what's for dinner? And she responded, for the fourth time, it is spaghetti. How often we see in others a fault that it actually may be writ much larger in our own lives. We see the sawdust, we miss the speck. And Jesus says that in fact to find fault can sometimes be worse than the fault itself. For in the end, to judge others is to play God. Do not judge that you don't be judged. Now, as I thought about that this week, it raised a few questions in my mind. Does that mean we're to turn a blind eye to the faults of others? To pretend that everything's okay? Now, it might help us if we looked at the word that Jesus used. The word that Jesus used is literally the word separate. And the idea comes from the idea of the judge separating fact from fiction. Separating the truth from the lies. Jesus isn't asking us to turn off our critical faculties. In fact, the New Testament tells us that we need to be discerning, doesn't it? It tells us to test the spirits to see if they are of God. It tells us to beware of false prophets. We're to use those critical faculties that God has given us. To use our brains, to use our mind. What has, uh, is in mind here, I think, is that uncalled for criticism, that unnecessary fault-finding, that destructive condemnation that writes people off because of who they are or what they've done. The message translates that scripture like this. Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticise their faults. So I don't think we're to turn off our brains. I don't think we're to turn off our critical faculties. But we are to notice the very sense of a priority that Jesus gives us. In the, the verse itself, or in the little cartoon itself, notice the words it says, first, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to help the other person. We're not to ignore 
one another. Indeed, we're to be committed to one another, to help one another, to grow into the likeness of Christ. And to ignore that fault, that failing, would be a failure of love. But the priority is the first thing we have to do is sort out our own lives. And then we're in a position to help one another and to serve one another, to disciple one another. There's a verse in Galatians chapter 6, I think is a, is a helpful commentary on what Jesus says here. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Galatia, is someone caught in, in a sin or overtaken in a sin, literally? There's someone having a go through a tough time. Do they slip up? Do they fall? Do they fail? Those of you who live by the Spirit should restore the person gently. But watch yourself or you may also be tempted. That's Galatians 6 and verse 1. He tells us four simple steps to take. He says, first of all, don't ignore it. Don't turn your back on it. Address the situation. Because of our commitment to Christ and our commitment to one another, there is a sense in which we have a responsibility for one another to help each other to be good disciples of Jesus. And if you're conscious of of someone that's going the wrong direction, the wrong relationship, something that's not right in their lives, then you have a responsibility to do something, to help them. But secondly, he says, it it is interesting, he says those who are spiritual should do this. It says those who are mature, those who are in such a state in their own Christian lives that they're aware of their own weaknesses and vulnerability. One of the things I noticed when I first became a Christian, I knew what was right and wrong for everybody. You know, we tended to be that way when, we, when I first became a Christian in my late teens. I was a self-righteous prig quite a lot of the time. So only as I've become more mature of a Christian, I've realised actually it's not always quite as simple as that. Yes, there are clear rights and wrongs in Scripture. God's Word doesn't change. But there are an awful lot of greyer areas that I was not prepared to accept when I was a young Christian. But thirdly, you need to remember how it is to be done. It is to do it, says Galatians 6, 1, gently. Not harshly, not self-righteously, not in a finger-pointing kind of way, but in an arm-round-the-shoulder kind of way. Humbly, with understanding, with empathy, not with any feeling of superiority. And the whole aim of it all is, of course, to restore. That's the word Paul uses there in Galatians 6. It's to, it's, it's to mend things. It was the word used in, in surgery, medical terms, to mend a broken bone. If you see someone's life is broken, then it's not a, not a loving thing to leave them be. It's a loving thing to draw alongside and help to restore them to right relationships again, to fellowship once more. The aim is not to condemn or punish, but to put things right. I think the great example and illustration of that, of course, is in John chapter 8. You remember the account of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Clearly it was a, a set-up, a trap for Jesus. How would he respond in that situation? The punishment for adultery was stoning. Yet there seems to be no man present either. 
They drag her into Jesus' presence. What would he do? Would he uphold the law or not? Would he judge or not? And the interesting thing is he doesn't do anything or say anything really for a few moments. We're told that he, he leapt, stooped down and, and wrote in the dust on the ground. It's the only example we have of Jesus writing in the Gospels. The fascinating thing is, of course, we, we don't know what he wrote. And people have speculated, what did he write there on the ground? Did he just do some doodles and random marks, as it were, just to give himself some time to take his eyes off this sordid situation in front of him? Did he perhaps write out some of the words of the law, the shall, shalt not, the commandments? Or did he perhaps write down some of the sins of her accusers? Pride. Hypocrisy, jealousy, lust. Or what seems to me the most likely is, and this was a pattern of the way judges used to work in those days, they used to write down the sentence, they used to write down what they were going to say before they say it, and then just read out the words so they got it exactly right. Did he write there in the dust, let anyone who is without sin cast the first stone? And of course it was the perfect answer. Totally disarming for her opponents, but wonderfully liberating for the woman. And her accusers begin to drift away. Interestingly, the eldest first, says John, as they grasp the implication of what Jesus was saying. Now Jesus doesn't deny the charge. At no point does he condone what she has done. But neither does he limit the charge. They see one woman, one sin. Jesus sees the crowd and many sins. And it's as if he's saying to those who are there that day, this may not be your sin, but there are other sins that you are guilty of. All have sinned. And how important it is when we see someone going astray, when we see someone failing, messing up, getting it wrong, the Lord may well want to say to us, this may not be your sin, but what about this and this and this? Let him or her who is without sin throw the first stone. John Altberg says in one of his books, why is it so many churches produce so many good stone throwers? Do you have any stones in your pocket you need to let go of? I know what it is when I go for a walk on the beach with my wife. She always wants to pick up things, but of course I have to put them in my pockets. And then I turn up on Sunday and I go a pocket full of stones or shells or other bits of rubbish. <laughs> and are they carrying some stones around? The stage is, is left clear then, of course, isn't it, for just the Jesus, Jesus and the woman in John chapter 8. Do read the passage again. Does anyone condemn you? No one, sir, she says. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The law had no forgiveness for adultery, but Jesus did. He meets her with grace. She's forgiven. But now there needs to be a change of lifestyle, a change of direction. No more. Sin, no more. From now on, things need to be different. Free forgiveness leads to a new life. 
in one of Charles Schultz's Peanuts cartoons. Not that one, but another one. Linus says to Lucy, why are you always so anxious to criticise me? And Lucy answers, I just think I have a knack of seeing other people's faults. What about your own faults? asks Linus. Her response is, I just seem to have a knack of overlooking those. How easy it is to do, isn't it? To see in others our own faults and not recognise them in ourselves. So, let me make a few suggestions just in conclusion. When it comes to this area of judgment and relationships and criticism and so on, first step, always examine yourself before looking at others. Be aware of your own areas of weakness. Remember the plank in your own eye that magnifies the specks in the eyes of others. A visiting minister went to, to do a church school assembly one time and uh, he, was asked, he asked the question, what is the perfect parent? And the children came up with various suggestions. You know, they were kind, they were generous, they were fair, they were rich. These were all sorts of good ideas they came up with. And said, so, well, if the perfect parent said then, then what if, if you did something wrong, should they punish you? And they all said no. But then he went on to ask, well, what if your sister or brother hit you or broke something of yours? Should they punish them? And they all said, yes. We want God to forgive us, but so often we want God to judge others. It doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God. Always examine yourself before looking at others. Secondly, try to understand the other person's situation, the other person's struggle, the kind of issues they're going through, their life situation, their background, their family, their home, their childhood. What's been going on in their life that has brought them to this point? My uh, daughter is a deputy head of a school. school with lots of problem children. And so often she says, there aren't any problem children, just problem parents. What's gone on? What's the background? What's led to this person making these kind of decisions, living that kind of lifestyle? And remember, only God knows the whole truth. Thirdly, remember that the whole aim of this is not to put people right. We're not there to burden them even more, but to help relieve that pressure, to bring them to a place of grace and forgiveness and healing and wholeness. And fourthly, just make sure you're allowing the teaching of Jesus to shape the way you think, the way you live, your words. This chapter ends with that familiar parable of the wise and foolish builders. We know it so well. And of course the difference is not that, that, that they both heard Jesus' words, but one was prepared to obey, to live by what Jesus taught in his word. This is Holy Week. My wife and I have been reading through some, some Lent readings and been reading the trial of Jesus 
And as you read that again, and perhaps you'll read some of that during this week as you come up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, what strikes you is his silence before his accusers. He doesn't defend himself, does he? His life has spoken for itself. And as the week goes on, you sense that actually it was not Jesus who was on trial. It was Caiaphas and it was Herod and it was Pilate who were on trial. That they are being judged by the simple, holy dignity of Jesus who stands before them. Who he is, is enough. Words are not necessary. He stands before them as the sinless friend of sinners. And a pattern for us. We have a choice. We can either live in the realm of law or the realm of grace. The realm of judgment or the realm of forgiveness. For Jesus says the measure that we give will be the measure that is given to us. It works like a boomerang judgment. You give it out to others and it comes back and hits you in the face. And so does grace. And we've recently moved house to a new area and we're just sort of getting to know people. And it reminded me of a story, who moved to a, new, a man who moved to a new area and he went for a little walk and sat in the local park and one of the locals came and sat next to him and they got chatting. And the visitor, the newcomer, said, uh, what are people like in this area? And the local guy said, well, what were they like where you came from? And he said, that, well, they were a bit judgmental and distant and miserable really and the man said well I think you'll find they're much the same around here a little bit later another this guy went and another local man came and sat next to him and they got chatting once more and he asked him what are people like who live around here and this new guy said well what were they like where you came from and he thought he'd try a different tack he said they were very welcoming and warm and caring community and the other chap said, well, I think you'll find they're much the same around here. The measure you give will be the measure you receive. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Let's pray together. Let us pray. Lord, first of all, we want to say thank you for your amazing grace to us. We were singing a few moments ago about how many times we've failed and yet you've reached out to us in love once more. Your love has rescued us, redeemed us, renewed us, brought us back home. We thank you for that. And we pray, Father, as those who have received maximum grace, we may give that same measure of grace to others. Lord, so easily we can see in others the faults that they have that may be a reflection of the faults that are in us. And Lord, as we've been thinking this morning, I just want to ask that by your Holy Spirit that if there's a particular person or group of people that comes to mind that in our lives we have been passing judgment on, perhaps not even realising it, but we've kind of categorised them or written them off in some way because of who they are, because of things they've done. 
Lord, will you bring them to mind now and give us grace to forgive them? It may be someone within the wider family, it may be someone we work with, that we realise we have dismissed them. We've judged them of being that kind of person, not my kind of person. Lord, forgive us and give us your grace. Help us to see that person this coming week with your eyes. To love them with your love. And not to judge them or criticize them or reject them, but to welcome them, to embrace them, and to help them as they help us to grow to be more and more like Christ. We thank you that Jesus did not come to judge, but to save. May we go into this coming week in that same spirit with a desire to serve, to give, to forgive, to restore and not to condemn. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.